gospel in chapter number 23 as we continue our study in the life and ministry of the Lord. And now we are, of course, in the final week of the Lord's life and in one of the final uh, real encounters with a group of people known as the Pharisees. And uh, I got to tell you, after studying this this week, I'm looking forward to moving past this because uh, these are some brutal, brutal uh, words and some brutal truths that Christ preaches to these people really in, in his final showdown with them uh, as it relates to the conversations and things that he had to have with them really all throughout their lives. Next week, uh, we'll look at a great story of the widow casting her gift in to the offering in one of our Lord's last appearances in the temple. And then from there, we go to the Mount of Olives and have a series on last days in the Mount Olives, which is a, a great study. So that's all coming up here before the end of the year, before we get into the Christmas season. And I'm excited about every single message uh, in this series. So I'm going to look at that in just a minute. we got, we got some great things planned coming up at the church. And I just pray that you'll just jump in and be involved. Look for those announcements at the end of the message. Let's look, if you will, in Matthew 23, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats at the synagogues. Greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But, do, but you do not be called Rabbi. For one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father. For one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. This is God's word. I want to preach to you this morning on this subject, the Pharisee in me. The Pharisee in me. M.R. Dahan, who was a famous Bible teacher from Grand Rapids, Michigan, last century, made the following observation. I want you to listen very carefully. He said, I myself am religious and moral and politically conservative. I believe, he says, in moral absolutes. I believe in the authority of the Bible. I believe that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. I also oppose abortion, atheism, and homosexual marriage. But the most dangerous people in the New Testament were not atheists, homosexuals, liberals, or revolutionaries. 
the most dangerous people in the Bible were politically active, religiously conservative, political defenders of their spiritual heritage. In other words, they were a lot like you and a lot like me. There's a Pharisee in all of us. Every one of us are prone in some way, shape, or form to function like, think like, and sadly act like Pharisees. Now I know when you see the word Pharisee in the Bible, I, you know obviously if you're a student of the Bible, this is not the first time that you see these people mentioned in the Bible. In fact, in, in the life of Jesus, they're all over the place. And I, I've had to be careful through this series to pick and choose what I really needed to emphasize. Otherwise, I would have been doing this for probably 10 years. But the fact is, the most critical, hypocritical, negative people that Jesus encountered, and, and frankly, the most harsh words Jesus ever spoke, were directed toward these people called the Pharisees. And so... I haven't said a ton about them, and I want to say a little bit about them this morning. Who are these people? And, and, and what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Why is he so, so forceful with them? Well, well the, the, the Greek word that is translated Pharisee comes from a Latin word uh, called Hasidim, which, which was a group of people that developed in what we would call the intertestamental period of the Bible. You, you probably know this by now, I'm sure, but there's the Old Testament, of course, and there's the New Testament. And in between the Old and New Testament, there was a 400-year period uh, that, that is really not recorded in the Bible. There are historical things recorded in a document called the Apocrypha. Some of you probably heard of that. And basically, during that time period, you've got, you've got Greek, the Greek Empire ruling the world through men, a man by the name of Alexander the Great. And his, his influence, this is after the Persian kingdom, which is really what's going on when the Bible closes at the end of the Old Testament. And then you've got the rise of the Grecian Empire. And that Grecian Empire was much like Rome when we start reading the Bible. Rome, of course, uh, is headquartered in Rome, but, it, but, it, but its influence was all over Europe and all over really the known world at that time, particularly all the way into uh, Israel and, and, and the Jewish people. So when you open up the Bible and you read about Rome, and you're like, well, why is Rome there? That's because Rome was literally governing the entire world at that time. Prior to Rome were the Greeks. And just like Rome had power over the entire world at that time, Greece had power over the entire world in their time. And as a result of their influence politically, they also had influence spiritually and religiously. And so during this time, there developed a group of people called the Hellenist Jews, or from Hellenistic culture. And all that really means, and you see this mentioned in the book of Acts at least once in Acts chapter 6. But the Hellenistic Jews were people that basically were culturally liberal but spiritually conservative. So they believed the Bible, they believed certain things about the Bible, but culturally speaking, they were not living like the Jewish Torah or law prescribed. And so they developed a, basically a whole subculture of Christians that, that, yeah, they knew God or they said they knew God, but really, as it related to their daily lives, they lived much like people that did not know God. During that same time, because there was a rise of these, these culturally liberal people, there also arose this group called the Hasidim or the 
or the separated ones. These are people that believe the most strict practice of the Old Testament scripture. And they developed into what we read in the Bible as the Pharisees, the Hasidim, the separate ones. And now in the New Testament, they're, they're, they developed into a political and religious organization. And they are collectively called the Pharisees. Not only were the Pharisees really fundamentally strict regarding the legal parameters of the Old Testament, they also brought into the society a group of non-written laws, oral traditions, that became added, frankly, to the Bible. And they then held people to those standards. They laid stress, not just on righteousness according to the law, but adherence to extra-biblical law and the formalism that surrounded Jewish religious culture. And to make matters worse, not only did they add to the law, but then they added an expectation that everybody adhered to what they had said even more than simply what God said. And so, when you come to the New Testament, these are a group of people, listen to this, they are known for arrogance, they are known for strictness, they are known for hypocrisy, they are known for judgmentalism, they are known for formalism. And you got to be really careful here, folks. In our culture today, people get called Pharisees just because they practice things that are taught in the Bible. That's not a Pharisee, that's called being an obedient follower of Jesus Christ. And there's a difference. Uh, listen, I, I can tell when I say stuff like that that people are confused. And even in a church like ours, people kind of almost kind of nod their head sideways to me like, what are you talking about? I'm saying to you... That the Bible is very clear. There are certain things that Jesus taught, that Jesus emphasized, that Jesus commanded. That it is our responsibility to follow as good disciples of Jesus Christ. That does not mean that you are a Pharisee because you obey the Bible. A Pharisee is someone who adds to the Bible. A Pharisee is someone who is arrogant in their positions on the Bible. A Pharisee is known for hypocrisy, appearing one way and yet not being one way in reality. A Pharisee is also known for judging others who don't fit in their box. And folks, you can imagine uh, the revolution that Jesus brought whenever he was teaching, preaching, and ministering to people who were so outside of the Pharisee's box, they couldn't handle it. I mean, while they excluded people that, uh, that drank or partied or cheated others, you know what Jesus did? Jesus actually reached into them and reached them with the gospel. It's an amazing revolution that he brought. And so the Pharisees, because of their attitude toward the, 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 the extra-biblical revelation, of course, all pressed on Jesus, calling him out as, a, as, as, as an unbiblical, unspiritual, revolutionary leader. And so that's why there were these clashes in the Bible. And this, in Matthew chapter 23, is the final and ultimate clash between Jesus and the Pharisees. And by the way, it is a one-sided discussion. It is a sermon, if you will. Uh, uh, frankly, the debates and the discussions are over. And in Matthew chapter number 23, Jesus is going to give us all the final word on the Pharisee. And i got to tell you, this chapter uh, about the Pharisees really breaks down into three parts. There's warnings in verses 1 through 12. And that's directed to you and me. If you read verses 1 through 12 again with this view in mind, this is Jesus warning us about the Pharisees. And then you come to the second part of the chapter and Jesus is going to pronounce woes directly to the Pharisees. 
And then the very last part of the chapter is Jesus weeping over the rejection of the Pharisees. And here's the simple message I want to preach to you today. I want you to understand that, that, that living like a Pharisee is possible for all of us. And I want to point out from this chapter seven marks of a spiritual Pharisee. Don't worry. Don't look at your clock, okay? This is not time to go, whoa, he's going to do seven of these. Okay, he usually does two or three. What does that mean for time? Listen, I like football too, okay? And, and I need to eat too. So don't, don't, don't get nervous. Don't, don't check out. And don't make your phone ring here in about 10 minutes and act like you've got to step out and take a call, okay? Don't all of a sudden figure out that you've got to leave because, you know, this is going to be too long of a message. Okay, this is, this is going to be seven, but I'm going to go through them real quick. And, and guys, listen, the point of this message is simple. Number one, don't be a Pharisee. I mean, for crying out loud, that's the last thing in the world that you would ever want to be. And number two, keep yourself away from Pharisees. Because they will wreck you. They will destroy you. They will mess with your head. They will destroy your Christianity. And we need to be able to identify them and mark them, okay? So number one, I want you to see this. What's the first mark of a Pharisee? Simply this, they love position more than service. They love position more than service. The Bible says here in verse number two, the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. This is a seat of prestigious influence. The seat in a sense that Jesus speaks to it here, it's like a position of authority or a teacher. And, and if you follow anything with higher education, you would know that they still do this today. They'll say something like, he's the chairman of a department. He sits in a what? In a chair. He chairs a department. I've actually done this before, where I was responsible for the academic and curriculum and the teacher training of an entire department of a college. It's a big responsibility. And it's not just given to anybody uh, uh, that, that, that isn't qualified, isn't experienced, or isn't trained. So, so when the Bible says here, they sit in Moses' seat, it's talking about they have elevated, they, they've been elevated to this position that is a prestigious and influential position. Secondly, they love the perks of their position. Look at verse 6. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, Greetings in the marketplaces. They love the recognition and the perks of their position. Can't you just see this? They love it when they go to a parking space and it says reserved for Pharisee. They love it when, 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 when people reach out to them and say, hey, let's let the Pharisees eat first at the potluck. Or let's, let's name this room after Pharisee Joe here. They love to be in a position of influence, and they love people to understand and recognize they're in a position of influence, they will throw titles around, they will throw positions around. And folks, i got to tell you, if I've ever in my life seen something so sad, it is this, that sometimes even in the church of Jesus Christ, people love positions far more than they love actually serving the Lord. And, and you study this in the Bible, you will find there are speaking gifts, there are serving gifts, and there are sign gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter number 12 through 14. You know what's interesting to me? People crave uh, speaking gifts. People love it. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, he says, Desire, covetly earnest the greatest gifts. You guys want to sing. You guys want to speak. You want to be in the spotlight, so to speak. And the problem is the vast majority of Christians aren't gifted in a, such a way that they're supposed to be 
uh, speaking or, 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 or on stage, if you will. The vast majority of Christians that I've met in my life have serving gifts. You know what's amazing about serving gifts? They happen behind the scenes. Oftentimes they go unnoticed. Oftentimes there's not a placard given to a person who does this. Oftentimes they're the people that you least recognize in the church. And here's the bottom line. I've seen my fair share of conflict in church, okay? I've seen my fair share of people getting sideways, one with another in church. I've seen my fair share of people craving things in the church. And here's one thing I can tell you for sure. Oftentimes, people will argue and fuss over a microphone, but they won't argue and fuss over a mop. that's you, friend, you're a Pharisee. If that's your attitude, I got to be, I got to be seen, I got to be noticed, I got to be recognized, somebody's got to praise me. Look, friend, you're in this for the wrong reason. Last time I checked, it was about Jesus, not about me. <laughs> Somebody said it like this, others may think you're great, but you better not. They love position more than service. Number two, they're hypocrites. They're hypocrites. Look at verse three. Look at what it says here. It says, it says, therefore, whatever, now look, look at this. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. Now, isn't that interesting? Sometimes a Pharisee will tell you something that's right because they're so committed to what's written down on the page. I think that's a striking statement. He says, whatever, whatever these Pharisees are telling you to do, go ahead and do it. Observe it. Do it. Here's the problem. Don't do what they do. Do what they say. Now, i got to tell you, that's not where you want to be as a spiritual leader. That's certainly not where you want to be as a parent. It's not where you want to be as a teacher or a person of influence where your audience has to do what you say, not what you do. And by the way, as a parent, let me just be clear about this. If your kids see something different between what you say and what you do, they're going to do what you do more than what you say. And what he's saying is these people have all these flowery statements. They have all these things they're telling everybody to do. And the bottom line is, do what they say because what they say is right. But be careful not to do what they do because they're not doing what they should be doing. They're hypocrites. That's what it means. A hypocrite says one thing, appears to be one thing, but in reality, he or she is simply not. April 1st, 1985, Sports Illustrated put out an amazing story about a New York Mets prospective pitcher by the name of Sid Finch. He was an unusual guy. He was older. He was, uh, had been clocked, they said, at New York Mets training camp, throwing a 110-mile-an-hour fastball. Six foot seven, I believe, he was, like, he was like Randy Johnson, for those of you old schoolers, he was like Randy Johnson on steroids. And he was coming up through the farming system, it was an amazing thing, and, and this, this article was basically, it was basically saying that, watch out everybody, the Mets have Sid Finch, and then two weeks later, they came up with a follow-up article, that would be, yeah, April 15th, reminding everybody that on April 1st, 1985, of course, every year is what, what day? It was a joke. It was a hoax. There was no guy named Sid Finch. He doesn't exist. They made him up and they got the whole sports world stirred up. And how amazing 
How amazing would it have been to have somebody that can throw a 110-mile-an-hour fastball to strike out the opposition? It would have been extraordinary. And it's just like I see some Christians. If you were actually who you portrayed yourself to be, it would be amazing. But the problem is we struggle with hypocrisy. Can I encourage you? Be high on walk and low on talk. Somebody said, I don't want to preach heavy cream and live skim milk. Amen. They're hypocrites. Number three, they do what they do. They love to be seen of men. This is extraordinary. Look, if you will, in verse number five, where it says these words, but all their works they do to be seen of men. Now, we want to mark that little phrase there, to be. It's actually a purpose clause in Greek. It simply means the reason they're actually doing what they do is for this purpose. They literally are doing what they do in order that other people may actually see what they're doing. Uh, these two phrases here about the phylacteries and about the, uh, uh, the borders of their garments. This is interesting. You probably haven't, maybe you haven't studied this before, but phylacteries were, were something that were actually worn during public worship. Uh, they, were, they were basically uh, uh, lanyards, if you want to think of it like that, lanyards that were worn and they had scripture references sewn into them. And so they would wear them obviously when they came to worship or they were coming to teach, but the problem is the Bible here is recording the fact that they were wearing these phylacteries outside of church. And then it even says this, look at it says this, it says they, uh, they, uh, they will then make their phylacteries, watch this, broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. So, so they're making them bigger than what they were supposed to be. They're making them, they're, they're making them longer, they're making them broader. What, what, what's the bottom line? They're making them more noticeable. They weren't wearing their phylacteries as worship to God. They weren't wearing their phylacteries to follow the law and do what God wanted to do. They were wearing their phylacteries bigger and warm outside of church so that everybody would see and know that they were spiritual. <laughs> Guys, I gotta tell you, I've been thinking about this a lot this week. Is there not a fine line here between doing what I do for God and doing what I do so other people will think I'm doing it for God? I don't know that I always know the difference. I don't know that we always know the difference. But I think sometimes little simple things that we do, we're not doing it to be a witness. We're doing it as an alarm sound to people who already believe like we do. Think about it. Something maybe I'll wear on a shirt or something I'll put on a car. Or something I'll broadcast on Facebook. Some political stance, some scripture reference, some hard thing that, that basically sounds a horn that says, yeah, I believe this. You know what's funny about that we do this on social media? I mean, let's just be real about this. How many people on your social media feed are actually unbelievers? So when you pronounce, proclaim, or tout some specific thing, who are you doing that for? Are you doing it for reach or are you doing it for you? 
There's a guy like this in the Bible, 3 John, uh, verse number 9, where, where John said these words, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, he will not receive us. Think about that. There's a man in the church who, who was so jealous to be recognized and to be seen that he would refuse to even allow other people to serve in capacities they were gifted and called to. And notice what it says here. He loved the preeminence. Do you know in the Bible there's only two places in the entire Bible that the word preeminence is used? One is in first, or third John, verse number 9, and the other is in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 18. One is about a man who loved preeminence, and the other is about Jesus who has the preeminence. One is about a man who desired something he did not have and should not have, and one who inherently has what he rightly deserves, the one who it is all about, the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, at the end of the day, Whatever we do, whatever we say, however we preach, however we serve, can I say this? It should fundamentally be about Jesus being big. Number four, <clears throat> number four, the fourth problem with the Pharisee begins in verse number 13. And essentially, let me summarize it like this, they eclipse genuine biblical faith. Notice it beginning in verse number 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. Watch this. For you neither go in yourselves, you're not even a Christian. But worse than that, you do not allow those who are entering to go in. People who would want to follow Jesus genuinely, truly. And guys, i got to tell you, I've been thinking a lot about this this week. Now, I'm not the most, you know, obviously... Because some of you may become from more conservative, strict kind of backgrounds. I am obviously not Mr. Traditional Formal, okay? That's not, that's not me. I, I, I want to, I, and I thought about this question a lot in preparation for this message and just in my life in general. What would I do, how would this church look if all I had was the Bible? That's it. Nothing else. No previous influence, no Bible college to ruin me, no, no, no people telling me things that weren't even true. How would I look? How would it be? How would we do this? Think about it. If all I had was scripture and all we had was the word of God and, I, and my heart is, my heart for you and my heart for me is genuinely that we would actually follow Jesus Christ. That we would follow scripture. And the problem is when you have all of these extra things set up in your life. That you have added to and made requirements to be a good believer or to be a believer at all. Guess what happens? You actually keep others from following Jesus yourself. I remember a few years back one of the saddest stories. In, and I have many but saddest stories I remember here at this church. Probably about four years ago, we were actually doing construction on this building right here. We hadn't moved in yet. We were in here cleaning out this auditorium, making it what it is today. And I'm in the back parking lot, and there's just all kinds of stuff going on. There's a beehive of activity, and a woman pulls up in the back over there, and she, she says, hey, where's the auditorium? I want to pray. And I said, well, you know, actually the auditorium's under construction, but I'm the pastor, and I'd love to pray with you. And it was just a few minutes later, I'm, I'm talking to her, 
uh, found out that she was actually running a occult shop right down here on Merrill Road. I'm talking about selling like parent card readings and crystal ball weird stuff like I don't even know. But I'm talking about legit right here in Jacksonville. And, and come to find out, she had, she had actually come to faith some, some time before, but her, her husband had not. And it was just a wake-up call for her. Her husband ended up getting saved and baptized here. And she, they really began following the Lord. They sold out their shop. I mean, it's like that story in the book of Acts where they had to burn their witchcraft books. That literally happened. They closed the store down. In fact, one lady named Michelle called this couple looking for whatever they buy at those places. And the woman said to this woman, Michelle, hey, you don't need that. You need Jesus. And believe it or not, Michelle came here to church. She got saved. And then her kids got saved, baptized all of them. Michelle, some of you may remember Michelle Ryrie. She moved to Tennessee about a year or so ago. And so she's no longer with us. But, I mean, God changed her life. It's an amazing story. Unfortunately, I did not realize that I had a few Pharisees around me. And I assigned the discipleship of this young couple to a Pharisee family in this church. And I remember it was just a couple days later, a couple weeks later, and I'm watching and all of a sudden this person who like one week ago was selling witchcraft stuff, all of a sudden has completely changed what she's wearing. It was like bizarre. Like denim skirts like down to the floor. And I'm like, whoa. Not that that's a problem. I mean, if that's what you like or whatever, fine. But I could tell, I could tell just by seeing it, this was what was being told. This is what Christians do. This is how Christians dress. I'm thinking, folks, listen, are, look, are there not far greater things for you to think about when you are selling tarot cards than that you don't wear jeans to church? That began a slide the wrong direction, and when there were troubles at this church in 2019, I remember watching them all pack up and head out because I wasn't spiritual enough. Pharisees keep people from following Jesus. And they turn people into spiritual nightmares. Be careful, which leads me to number five naturally. I'm getting there, guys, okay? And by the way, it's only 11.15. I'm watching the clock. I see it too. <laughs> Number five, they neglect really important matters. Look at verse 23, if you will. Look at this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. What is he saying? You guys tithe down to the smallest increase of herbs in your family. I mean, somebody hands you a little sack of mint, and you guys are going to dice it up, separate it out, and you're going to tithe 10% of that. By the way, you should tithe. Somebody better help me up here. You should tithe. Some of y'all are acting like this is, just, this is just a free ride on into eternity. How neat is this? Wow, this is great. How is this working out? Pretty neat setup for you. Don't give, don't serve, don't get involved, and just here you are. The point is not tithing. Jesus commends tithing. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, he says, when you tithe. Assuming 
you tithe. It's not time to get nervous. Everybody just chill. The point is not tithing, so you can be thankful for that. Otherwise, I'd park here for a few minutes. The point's not tithing. Here's the problem. The Pharisees were meticulous down to the penny. I made $562.38 this week, so I'm going to tithe $62.38 this week or whatever, whatever the number was. Whatever the number was. Probably kind of off there, wasn't it? Y'all be quiet. <laughs> oh, my kids remind me, yeah, you go to Dr. Deb, but it's in Bible, not math. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, okay, right. Whatever. Like 56 bucks. Whatever. Whatever, whatever it is. Okay. <laughs> See, I can't do that because if I did that, my tithe would be really messed up. I would be, I would be like, yeah, it's just not good. Here's the problem, though. You're out here dicing up your tithe bag. You're out here getting it right, dotting your I, crossing your T just perfectly. Every little thing is just right in order. You're the perfect Christian. You've got everything perfectly lined up. And then he says this, yet you have neglected the, watch it, weightier matters of the law. And as much as it pains me to say this, there are things more important than tithing. Should you tithe? Yes. Absolutely. Are there things more important than tithing? Yes. Are there things more important than absolute little dot your I and cross your T, external obedient issues? Yes. And here, here's something I want to point out to you guys, and I think this is a big deal. He says you've neglected the weightier of matters of law, like judgment, mercy. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about things that only the Spirit of God can produce in the life of a believer. Oh, friend, listen to me. I want to make this statement. I've made it before, maybe a couple years back, but it's good. And we need to hear this again. Listen very carefully, church. If, if, if what I think is holiness does not require the Holy Spirit, then maybe I'm misinformed. Anybody can wear a dress code. Anybody can use a calculator. Anybody can show up for church. You don't have to be a Christian to be here. But friend, when it comes down to the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance, those, those, those clear-cut works of the Spirit of God inside of somebody's heart that produces in them fruit that otherwise you wouldn't have. How in the world can I have peace that people cannot explain when I get a bad diagnosis at a doctor? How in the world can I love somebody that's not in love? How in the world can I have joy unspeakable and full of glory? How can I be patient with people? How can I be filled with long-suffering? How can I be gentle and mild with people when they're acting crazy? How do I do that? It's the Spirit of God doing something in your life that you cannot do on your own. The weightier matters of the law are things that you can't even do on your own, but the Spirit of God produces them in you. And how sad that religious people look at outward appearance issues and neglect the true work of the Spirit of God. Which leads me to number six. Pharisees focus on outward appearance. Pharisees focus only on outward appearance. And notice the key word there, only. Only. Look, if you will, at verse number 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, 
but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Ouch! Blind Pharisee first cleaned the inside of the cup and of the dish and that the outside of them may be clean also. Watch this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones. And what is look, these are graphic pictures. Who wants to eat off of a plate or drink out of a bowl or a cup that looks really good on the outside, polished off, but on the inside, you know, I mean, I, I live with this stuff with my kids. Like, I mean, can't, like the inside of a bowl or a plate after my kids get through with it is intolerable. That thing's going to get clean, wiped, it's going to get run through the dishwasher, and then I'm might think about you for a little later. Just because the cup looks nice on the outside doesn't mean I'm going to drink from it. And then this is even better. You guys are like a tomb. I mean, guys, look. Tombs can be very pretty. There can be beautiful headstones, fresh flowers. And I'm not against those things. Those are, that's awesome and nice to respect people that way and to beautify. A, but at the end of the day, What's going to be inside that grave? Bones. And Jesus said, look, here, here's the problem. You are focusing on the outside, and you're completely neglecting the inside. Isn't this what happened over in 1 Samuel chapter number 16 when David is anointed king? This is exactly what happens. The, the, uh, Samuel comes to Jesse's house. And Samuel says, God has sent me here to anoint a king. And he goes, whoop, boy, I got the guy, Eliab. He's number one. He's the oldest. He's the tallest. He's the sharpest. He's the best. He's the brightest. He leads in the army. He's tall. He's good looking. He's the guy. And before he even has a word with Eliab, Samuel is impressed by the Spirit of God. says, nope, that's not who you're looking for. Why? Because man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Please don't misunderstand that. That doesn't mean that outward appearance is not important. It just means that God has the ability to see things that we don't see and evaluate things that we don't evaluate. We can look at somebody and think, oh, they're great. We can look at somebody and think they're spiritual. We can look at somebody and say, oh, they're going to be a good church member or whatever you want to say it. But that's because all we can do is look on the outward appearance. Here's what you need to know. God sees what everybody else cannot see. God knows what other people cannot know. And you should spend more time worried about what God sees and knows rather than what others see and think. Which leads me to the last thing, number seven. Number seven, they ultimately reject the grace of God. Now to this point, I've been predominantly applying this sermon to those of us that are Christians. And I recognize that's part of it. That's why verses 1 through 12 is here. But I think there's a big narrative here about what Phariseeism actually means. It's actually legalism. It actually is a rejection of the gospel. Verse 29, woe unto you Pharisees and hypocrites because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn monuments of the righteous uh, and say if we had lived in the days of our fathers we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. In other words, they're looking back at the Old Testament and seeing what they did to people like Daniel and Jeremiah and Micaiah and others and they're saying we would have not participated in that. But then Jesus is going to say in verses 31 through 36, you would and are and did.
verse 36, Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Verse 37, this is a very famous verse. It's the final weeping over the ultimate rejection of the Jews by Christ. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings. Watch this last phrase. But you were not willing. You want to know what Phariseeism is at the end of the day? It's an ultimate rejection of the grace of God. Now, let me remind you of this verse. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you're here today and you are either completely lost without God, you're just, you're just, you, you, you don't even know how you ended up here today. You're just, you're struggling. Lost without God. God wants to save you and he wants to save you today. If you're here today and you're a Pharisee and you don't even think you need God, guess what? God is willing to save you, loves you just like you are too. And sometimes we have this wrong, and I have to be careful of this, that God really loves the down and outers, but he doesn't love the Pharisees too much. That's not true. He loves down and outers just as much as he loves Pharisees. Sad to say the difference between the two oftentimes is that those who are down and out oftentimes see their need and are willing to follow Jesus. Those who are arrogant and superficially spiritual don't think they are and often say no. God is willing to save you today. Question, are you willing to let him save you today? Let's pray as we close. I want to encourage you to respond today to this message. Just a moment, we're going to have a baptismal service. I'm excited about that. Before we do, let's be sure we do business with God. I want to ask a couple questions. Number one, how many of you say, preacher, every once in a while I see a Pharisee in me and I don't like it? I see a Pharisee in me, and I don't like it, and I want God to help me not be that, not follow that, not do it. Would you lift your hand and say, that's me, preacher, God spoke to me. Praise his name. He spoke to me this week, I can tell you that. Tough message. But in just a moment, I want to invite you to come as we worship the Lord. I want to invite you to come and pray, respond to what God spoke to your heart about. There may be some of you in this room right now, you're just not saved. You, you think it's religion. You, th you think you're beyond hope. I'm here to tell you that God loves you. I'm here to tell you that Jesus died for you, that he rose again from the dead. I'm here to tell you today, thankfully, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord can be saved. And if you're here and you are not saved, I want to invite you right there in your seat. Religion can't do it. Church can't do it. I can't do it. Jesus can and if you believe and you are willing to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'm going to encourage you right where you are, right here, right now, to pray and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You claim the scripture, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you know that he is God? Do you know that he died? Do you know that he was buried? Do you know that he rose again? And do you know that he did it for you and that that's the only chance you can have to get to heaven? If you do then I want to encourage you right here, right now, to call out to Jesus and accept him as your Lord and Savior. Right here, right now, in your heart, in your seat, 
just you and God. Just pray something like this. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I cannot get to heaven on my own. But I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died and rose again for my sin. I believe he is the only way to heaven. And God, today, I accept him as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for loving me. Help me never to be ashamed of you. Amen and amen.